just live in the now and look around and get involved. Like show up, be of service. It's so freeing. Ugh, I love it. Greetings, hello, salutations, and welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we are determined to use the gift of feminism to figure out what the F is going on in the world today. I am Laura Good. I'm Adrian Dobb. How are you doing, Adrian? I'm okay. You know, it's Thanksgiving week. We're all sitting at home and Googling, like, how much turkey can one person eat? What have your calculations revealed? I, I'm buying a chicken. Uh, that's Okay. <laughs> that's, <laughs> is it just, just the no two way. of you guys? Yeah, yeah. And so okay, basically, so yeah. like... <sighs> Turkey leftovers are like okay for a day for me. I didn't grow up with it. And so like Google says I've been munching on this for quite a while and I'm not emotionally ready for that. And so that's not that's not happening. Wow, violently suppressing munching joke. <laughs> it's okay. Go ahead. Wow. Wow. Um, the, uh, the teen boy audience does not need to be reached because it's already on the podcast, apparently. It's here. The call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> Uh, what were you going to say? This is very serious. I must say, I am feeling I'm feeling a lot better. We didn't mean to put out this episode this week, but I think it's kind of secret genius of the universe that we are because mm -hmm. just re-listening to it like made me smile like such a goofy big smile. And then, and also, you know, the city that we both live in that we like to make fun of, but that we also kind of deeply love, like has been kind of on hiatus for for a really long time now. And like, unlike some other parts of the country. We've been taking it pretty fucking seriously, and like we mm -hmm. haven't been able to go to you know, drag events. We haven't been able to. Well, we've been protesting a little bit because it is San Francisco. Always a little light protesting. Yeah, in the gotta city gotta, by the gotta bay. throw yes. some shit, right? <laughs> but but it was a kind of a reminder of what's what's amazing and what's magical about the city. Uh, mm -hmm. Our guest uh, today, Sister Roma. Um, is such a believer in this city and and just to hear her describe this place made me like made me really really look forward to it being back i feel like this was the interview definitely the interview that i saw you get the most emotional in and i i am always like a sloppy mess so it was no surprise perhaps that i too got emotional but yeah sister roma is a super emotional figure. She, I mean, we talk about who the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are in this interview, but they are, I gotta speak from the heart on this one. I, unlike you, am a practicing Christian. I'm Catholic. It's a thing. Get over it. Not you get over it, but some other people sometimes need to get over it. It's a weird contradiction about me, and it's something that I cling to by myself. And when I look at a figure like Sister Roma, I see someone who is living a Christ-like life. You know, she has devoted herself to service to the most needy, to the most forgotten, to the most marginalized. And like, what is more Christ-like than that? It moves me in both my conservative origins and in my progressive present. And I think that's part of why I love her so much as she manages to marry those two causes. Yeah, the, so maybe we'll say a little bit more about the sisters. So the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence are a group of, well, what would you call them? Half performance artists, half political activists, mm -hmm. founded, I believe, in 1979. They're almost, they're 40, over 40 years old now. Mm -hmm. And you, you'll see them at pretty much any progressive cause in San Francisco. As we cover in the interview, yeah. yes. And they'll be decked out in the most amazing 
nun's habits and makeup, mm-hmm. and yet at the same time, recognizably, you know, what we would today call genderfuck, right? So they, they did that from mm-hmm. the very beginning. They were not pageant queens. They were drag performers who would, were not against uh, having facial hair, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But from the very beginning, they took the religious part of this both mm-hmm. seriously and Definitely not seriously, mm-hmm. right? Both reverently and irreverently, yeah. I would call it. I mean, like, for instance, like, they're, you know, one of the earlier groups like this that became very, very well known out of San Francisco were the Coquettes. Mm. They were pure parody. I mean, with a very serious purpose, but, I love know. it when Professor Daub comes in with the queer San Francisco history. Go on. Look, I'm, uh, you know, I... I do love it. I was being serious. Stuff. Yeah. Um, those were really performance art groups. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they had a serious purpose, but they were ultimately meant to be there for your consumption and enjoyment to some extent. Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. the sisters from the very beginning, as, as Roma covers in the interview, were not, right? Uh, they very early on kind of intervened in the formation of the, well, mostly the gay community, but really the LGBT community around the Castro, which was a, a really kind of fraught time because as, as mm-hmm. Roma points out in the interview, while the Castro kind of got set up as this enclave where anything goes, um, and where, where you know, all the rejects of all uh, of all stripes have a place to go. That wasn't yeah. that, that very quickly didn't That's end up being post nineteen seventies understanding. Yeah, and it didn't really end up being true for long. Even once it became the gay makeup, because it, it, you know, Roma will allude to the Castro clone in our conversations. There was a particular kind of LGBT identity, specifically being a cis gay man. Oh, you're talking about the blue jeans and leather jackets Absolutely. and mustache kind of coding look. Yes, yes, yes. And frankly, and whiteness, right? Like it became mm-hmm, a very mm-hmm. quickly a white, it didn't become an exclusively white space, but, there, but it had a nasty habit of policing race. Mm-hmm. And the, the sisters sort of were very instrumental in sort of pushing back against that. And then, of course, AIDS happened. And they and they were, once again, as you say, were, were engaged in standing up for the most vulnerable members of society. In both advocacy and ministry, you know, Absolutely. like in both lobbying and providing direct, what we would now understand as mutual aid. They yeah. have been doing that for four decades. Yeah. So we're just so excited to get to talk to Roma about all that. And you can tell that we're both yeah. fa- fangirling. We fangirled pretty hard. Pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty hard. Yeah. <laughs> but she's such like a beautiful, I mean, she really is like a beautiful fairy queen who just goes around San Francisco, like making everybody a little happier. And yeah. that's, there's something as we talk about in the conversation, sometimes other parts of the country see that in a very deviant light. And I think we see it in an unbelievably wholesome one. Like there's something so wholesome at the core of that, that yeah. I just love. In a funny way, the sisters accentuate the small townness of San Francisco, right? Like, mm-hmm. I was thinking, you know, if, if any listeners want to see Sister Roma in the flesh once this is all over, once we've all gotten our vaccinations, literally anywhere in San Francisco can you run to Sister Roma. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, she'll get roasted in the Castro Theater for a good right. cause. One day, she'll be hosting the Drag King contest. The next, she'll be at the you know the Black Lives Matter rally the day after right. that. She'll be jetting off to a pride celebration somewhere else the day after. Icon. Yeah, it does kind of create this kind of small town feel. It's like, oh, the sisters are here. Awesome. Yes, that's exactly who the sisters are. I love that qualification. That is how you know that a protest in San Francisco is on the up and up, is when the sisters show up. Yeah, you walk into a party and you're like, ugh, are there no sisters here? Ooh. <laughs> 
that's that's like how I'm going to evaluate all gatherings after quarantine. I'm going to grab a pizza and come back in an hour. Let's see if the sister situation here improves a little bit. Are the sisters here yet? <laughs> Man, you talked about how much you've missed San Francisco, and I feel that too. And it was really lovely to connect with with Sister Roma in that missing. And I just wanted to share one other snapshot of yes. like missing San Francisco that I've had recently. So in pandemic times, my family has acquired one of those bikes that you can haul kids around on that has like a little electric boost. So usually my husband is like hauling the kids around on this thing, but on date night, he hauls my ass around. And I had like a moment of being self-conscious of this at first. I was like, is this weird that I'm just like riding around while my husband essentially like operates like a bike rickshaw hauling my ass around San Francisco? And then I was like, no, I'm not going to be self-conscious. Like anybody who looks at this can just see like, wow, this woman is powerful. She is like a hot guy hauling her ass around like all over San Francisco. So that's the way I've chosen to look at it. This, for the record, is the future liberals want. (laughs) Just men hauling women around. So a friend of mine has one of those where like the kid can sit in front. And it's just large mm-hmm. enough for a very drunk man to sit in too, and so I've definitely done oh, that. Oh yeah, yeah, I've yeah. Gotten, I've gotten rides home that way. Well, it's a nice, it's a nice ride. So we were we were pedaling our way through the mission, and there's that section of Valencia where they've started to close down traffic mm-hmm. so people can dine outside, and that was a little too crowded for my n- neuroses. But we did like bike our way on through, and there was a mariachi band playing, and I immediately burst into tears. It sort of felt like either the opening or closing montage of a David Simon series, you yeah. know, where they have like the emotional music and then you see all the characters in the city like going about their business. You know, I'm thinking about Treme when they come back after the hurricane for the first Mardi Gras after the, you know, and the music is this like huge emotional signal. But anyway, yes, I cried at a mariachi band because that's how much I've missed San Francisco. I feel like I've seen the same mariachi band there. I think they've been out there. Yeah. They, I think they have their mask, which is like so, which is so responsible. Oh, wow. I believe I so. I didn't, I didn't get close. How you play a trumpet through a mask? I was wondering about that, but it looked like they were wearing masks. Wow. I, I mean, I wonder how much lung capacity, maybe I'm, mis- I mean, uh, if one of our readers can email us if, if this is impossible. Yeah, if but someone I could follow I saw this. and confirm. Oh, one other, one other San Francisco story we should tell about how Roma is everywhere is how this oh my God. episode came to be aired when it did. Because it was supposed to come out last week. Right. So, so 2020 being 2020, the audio fuck-ups have been uh, strong oh, in, yeah. in the feminist present universe. Oh, and yeah. we're not subtweeting anybody. Like, half of the audio fuck-ups have been mine. Ours. Ours, please. O- ours. Ours. Um, one such fuck-up was that when Roma went to send us her audio of her side of the recording, she sent us the wrong file. And the file she sent us was amazing. And uh, she gave us her permission to drop it in for your enjoyment here. So here is the original interview with Sister Roma. And please imagine our amazing producer, Isabella, listening to this and be like, well, how am I going to edit this? Is that enough head on your pint, Chuck? So that's what Roma sent us, and we are grateful to her generosity in letting us use it. And um, I guess, you know, in parting, we just really hope that this interview leaves a smile on your face. You know, it's been a hard ass year, as we have covered many times. A lot of people are making tough choices not to gather with people they want to be gathering with this week. Some people, like me, are really excited not to spend the holidays in the airport for the first time in 18 years, but that's (laughs) to be conferred with another day. So why don't you just spend some time with us and with Roma and with the entire city of San Francisco? Be enwrapped in the embrace of a very gay Thanksgiving with the feminist present, Sister Roma, and you. (laughs) 
please enjoy. Happy holidays. Thank you for listening. Thanks so much for for being with us today. And I I thought we might start by just asking about your story um, as part of the sisters. Um, what what was that like? When did you arrive in San Francisco, and how soon did you find find the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence? Well, I actually came to San Francisco my junior year in college, and I had never visited California before. I came to see a friend of mine who had graduated a year before me. And I decided to come in the summer and I stumbled on Pride. So I had no idea that it was Pride celebration was even happening. And here I was this very, from a very conservative small mm. town, Grand Rapids, Michigan, found myself in the middle of this amazing celebration with 100 to 300,000 people who were like me and out and proud and loud. I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah. When you consider that the Pride Parade goes down the middle of Market Street from the water through the financial district to the steps of City Hall. I was just like, this was mind blowing. I literally, my... I just couldn't believe it. So I knew that I had to live here. That and just the beauty of San Francisco. I mean, the, uh, it doesn't matter where you are. If you're out, if you're down here looking up at the hills, the vistas, if you're up somewhere looking out at the bridge and the water, the skyline, I, being from a very flat part of the country, I, I was just blown away by everything about it. So I went back and I did finish college. And I graduated and stayed. I stayed for a little bit of the summer because summer in Michigan is quite fabulous, especially if you happen to have a friend who has an elderly gentleman with a fabulous condo oh, on the beach in Grand Haven. That does sound and nice. And you just yeah. want to party for the whole summer. Then I just, I actually knew the one person that I had gone to school with, and I moved out here and stayed with him, and that was in 1985. Many years later, I would end, up, would end up being Grand Marshal of the San Francisco Pride Parade. So it has been quite a journey. Quite a journey, yeah. But the part of that that you asked me about is the sisters, and that happened in 1987. I had been here for a couple of years, sort of just living this crazy gay boy in a gay candy store dream when I was with friends at the Midnight Sun, which is a bar that still is on Castro Street. It was very much a sweater bar, is what you called them back then in the 80s, where everybody was more or less preppy or came from work for happy hour. And we were drinking our two-for-one cocktails and our power ties, watching the videos at the other end of the bar. There's these giant screens, and that's basically what you did there. And all of a sudden, the door just breezed open, and in came this character, like like I'd never seen before in my life. She looked like a showgirl clown nun. And she knew everybody by name. She was smiling and laughing. The bartender gave her a drink, wouldn't take her money. Was, we were all just standing there staring with our mouths open like, what is happening? And she was fabulous looking and just looked so, I was so intrigued. And she came up to my table. I was standing with my friend Matthew and some others. And she said, hi, Michael, which is my given name that I never use. And I said, 
do I know you? <laughs> she goes, it's me, Norman. I go, what are you doing? And she said, I'm Sister Luscious Lashes with the sisters. And I had never heard of the organization. I had seen drag queens. I'd never done drag. It never even crossed my mind. And she changed my life. Mm. Like literally at that moment is when I learned about the sisters. I'm, and I learned that my Norman, who was my good, good friend and my partner in crime, who I knew in every other circumstance in life, came out to me as a sister and then introduced me to the group. And I started to volunteer with them just as a boy, like selling pom-poms at the basketball games at Kazar Stadium or whatever they needed me to do. And I learned about the impact that the sisters had on the community and the world because the sisters were one of the first organizations to really face HIV and AIDS head on in a very practical but passionate way. Uh, the sisters produced Playfair, which is a safe, actually the world's first safer sex pamphlet geared towards our community. And it was an illustrated, very whimsical publication. And we still produce, produce it today, but it was an, an effort to educate our community about how to protect themselves against HIV even before it was, before they knew what it was. Like we're talking about pre, when it was like gay cancer or whatever they did, you know, nobody really knew what it was. So there was so much stigma and fear around it. Uh, the sisters were one of the first groups ever to hold a fundraiser for people who were sick and dying from HIV and AIDS. And they, they needed practical care. They needed help paying for their rent and buying toothpaste. And I was just so impressed by the impact that the sisters had and the their passion and their courage that I I was hooked. I just couldn't help it. And one day Norman said to me, just try the makeup. And he showed me how to put on the white face and he put me in front of the mirror. And I was like, I don't I don't know what I don't know what to do. She goes, just paint whatever comes out. And so I painted I was a, I'm a graphic artist. I was I've always been very graphic. So I painted these very strong war paint looking angles, big triangles and used a lot of day glow colors and severe harsh lines on my face and glitter. So the war paint was actually very appropriate for where we were at that time in the community, 1987. There was still a, a huge fight ahead of us about HIV and AIDS. Mm. And um, I went to brunch with Norman in drag, my first time ever in public. And I couldn't stop looking at myself. I picked up anything that I could find a reflective surface and just couldn't get enough of myself. I was so into it. it was, and I'm still the same way. I'm the most annoying, vain person you'll ever meet. I thought I was gorgeous then. Now, oh, honey. <laughs> I think no matter no matter one's place in the scenario, one's first drag brunch is like a really important and undersung rite of queer passage. It's a very important passageway. <laughs> You're right. So true. So I just sort of took off running with it, and I, I never looked back. I... I'm so indebted to the sisters who came before me for the great things that they did and for allowing me to join the group mm. and to carry on and pick up the different causes that I have. And, and they've given me quite a big stage and a big platform. And it changes all the time. Yeah, The sisters, are our focus and our, our passions are continue to grow as the order grows around the world. Because back then there was just five of us, really, in San Francisco who were active. And now we have sisters on four continents. Yeah. Mm. One thing that, that's interesting in terms of, so you, you talk about the reluctance to talk about HIV AIDS at the time and the sisters sort of thematized in ways that a lot of parts of the gay community were not willing to do at the time. 
but the same was kind of true for drag, wasn't it? I mean, as some of our our younger listeners might think of this as something that's sort of unproblematically part of the queer community, but at the same time, there was a kind of respectability politics that really didn't very much like drag queens, right? Where the idea was this plays to negative stereotypes of uh, the LGBT community. Absolutely. It was a culture, a subculture, an underground culture that was always there, but they never would come out even to their other gay friends sometimes and tell people that they did drag or they went to these balls or they participated in wearing clothing of the opposite sex. I mean, it was very complicated back then too. You could get arrested You had to wear one garment to your gender that you were assigned. Otherwise, you could be arrested. I mean, it was just, it was a nightmare for for drag queens and kings and, and trans and gender fluid people. But in our own community, yeah, the prejudice has always been real. And the, the thing that you mentioned about the, the stigma and fear around HIV and AIDS, the thing really, honestly, that impressed me the most about the sisters is that while people were losing their jobs, their homes and many times their friends and definitely their family because people were just so afraid. They didn't know how the disease was was being transmitted. They weren't sure, could you get it from a drinking glass? Could you touch someone and get it? So these people quite often were completely isolated and the disease had a very disfiguring effect on people. You'd be covered in purple cancer carposies, you know, the great big purple spots on your face and you you would lose weight dramatically in just a short amount of time. So it was very obvious who was sick. And quite often where our community goes is a bar, it's sort of our church. It's, it's our community center. It's where we've gone for years to dance and gather. And also in isolation, these people would just go sit at the end of the bar alone, really hopeless. And the sisters taught me right away not to be afraid and to walk up to those people and engage them in conversation. And, and quite often, all they wanted to do was talk. And if they asked for a hug, we definitely said yes. So that was the thing that really sealed me on the deal. I was like, these are great people. And um, I care about my community. And I care about I care about people. So that and then being a drag queen was not the easiest thing to do because it's not masculine. There was a huge thing at the time when the sisters started, there was a thing called the Castro clone. And all the men wanted to look like they stepped off a roll of paper towels or like they were, you know, the Marlboro <laughs> man. Like they had big mustaches and wore leather jackets. I mean, everybody wore that blue jeans, boots. It was like done. That was it. You're gay. You're going to the Castro. You're going to South Market. You wear a little more leather. But it was always uber, uber masculine. So drag queens were had their places where they went and sometimes they entertained and the court, of course, had its very important place in our community as well, the imperial court. But then on top of being a drag queen, being a nun, being one of the sisters was also polarizing because a lot of people just looked at it and thought it was so blasphemous and never understood who we were. We looked like clowns. We're making fun of the Catholic Church. We're making fun of religion. We're making fun of God. So all of those things were hurdles that we had to overcome. We had to earn the trust of our community. 
we had to break down stereotypes and barriers. Quite often the sisters were the first drag queens to step foot in like the country western bar, which Sister Blanche DeRoot loved to, to square dance. And she was one of the first people to convince them to let us into the country and western bar south of Market back in like 1988. They didn't even let you in. Like you, they made these weird rules about you can't wear open-toed shoes. Like they, you know, they would do whatever they could to keep us out. But we even got into the black and white ball. Wow. Which I know because we knew, we know, you know, if you want to get into any of those places, you just find the queer and catering or somebody who's got access to the back door. And you're like, girl, we're here. And we looked amazing. And they snuck us in and we just breezed through and, and we won everybody over. That's the thing. Like once you give somebody a chance and I don't care if I'm talking about drag queens, black people, anyone who's different from you. If you just let your guard down and relax and just look at them and, and just be like, here's another human being. Let's let's learn about each other. What are you about? Like, don't be afraid. So many things are based on fear. And it's just it's always confounded me and frustrated me. I feel so sorry for those people because they're missing out on so many opportunities and so many great people. Just how could you imagine living your life with the hate that we're seeing today from some of these people? Just unfounded. Ugh, it's exhausting. It is exhausting. It takes stupid time and stupid effort and it just wastes your life. Yeah. And to go around feeling like that and looking everywhere you look, you see something to sneer at or spit on. It's like, why? Life is way too short. And then to raise your kids like that. It's child abuse, because I can guarantee you whenever I'm out in drag and I approach a child, which happens a lot, you know, there's kids everywhere. If they're curious and smiling and giggling and, and run towards you and they want to touch the feathers or they, they, you know, they ask questions, their parents are standing behind them smiling and encouraging them to do that, maybe asking questions too. But if you see a child who's cowering in fear and looks like they are going to cry and maybe they're hiding behind their parent's leg, if you look up at that parent, guaranteed they have a nasty look on their face. You know, they have taught their children how to react to this. Because the, the sisters have always said, we are mirrors and whatever you see in us is just a mere reflection of what's in you. And I used to think that I was like, okay, girl, easy does it. You know, like, that's a lot. <laughs> but I've learned that it's really true because I can walk down the block and I, I don't change the way I look and I get the whole gamut of reactions from people. So people's reactions say a lot more about them than they do about you, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things, you know, I, I've lived in San Francisco long enough that I, I sometimes joned kind of grok how the rest of the country or not the rest of the country, how certain parts of the country see us. Like, it took me forever to understand that when people were asking me about uh, Drag Queen Story Hour, they meant this, like, they were freaked out by this. I was like, oh, yeah, it's a very sweet uh, tradition it's that like we have. It's like the most wholesome San yeah, Francisco yeah. tradition. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and then I would sort of be, be like, oh, that's not what you meant for me to say here. That's not what you were asking about. But it's like, yeah, it's it's very funny to like, because, you know, anyone who's been there knows it's like the sweetest thing and like the oh most God. magical Profoundly moment. Profoundly wholesome. Uh, yes. It's absolutely magical. And I am very good friends with a lot of the queens who read to the children. I am very good friends with Little Miss Hot Mess who's one of the people who started that whole thing. And I 
I've people are people on these comment threads and these onlines and the attacks are like, what are you? You're trying to get our children. You're trying to you know recruit or whatever. Like, why would a drag queen want to read to a child? <laughs> and it's like, well, why would anybody want to read to a child? Can there be anything more beautiful than reading to a child and expanding their minds and seeing their reactions? Like, it's just a, it's a loving thing. Mm-hmm. And again, it goes back to what the child is taught about how to react and what to be afraid of and to fear and what to accept and enjoy. And it all goes back to some of those parents. Yeah. You know, Roma, since this is an audio format, I wonder if we could just like play a little verbal game where we all kind of just dis- we'll put some pictures up on the website. But I would love for us to describe in words what the sisters sort of like special costume looks like, because to me, it has a, tr- a sort of medieval tinge to it. Um, like it looks sometimes like something out of out of Eyes Wide Shut or the 16th century with like a lot more glitter and flair. But like, is there is there a history specifically to that costume beyond just drag? Like how what was what was in mind with its design? Wow, you are so on point. Did you Google it, girl? I didn't. I didn't. I swear. I'm just a fan. Our habits are absolutely based on 14th century ladies in waiting's habits and nuns habits from that era yes they are the original habits were very stark and austere and that's where the 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 inspiration came from and there's also a little bit of goth in there and then there's a little bit of the fairies are thrown in the sisters traditionally around the world have these their habits that represent the communities and the place that they're from so the sisters in san francisco we have what we call the nun bun which is sort of looks like Mickey Mouse ears, really, but it's two giant knobs that sit on our head. And then we have a veil that we put over that. And for formal habits, we have a bib, a sepulcher. You can hang a sepulcher, which is the long thing that goes down the middle. I went to a Catholic college and I never knew any of these terms until I joined the sisters. Now I'm all like, oh, yes, darling. So and then we have our robes or we have jackets, black jackets for formal occasions. But the other thing that always set the sisters apart was the white face. And that, the idea behind the white face actually is that it sets us apart, it makes us stand out, but also it's meant to take away race or gender or anything like that. It's very concealing. It's very difficult to recognize a sister out of a face, I think, quite often, because it, that white face really does, ba- you're, you're an egg, girl. You're an egg, now go crazy and, and paint this face, so... Sisters are encouraged to just paint however they feel natural. And then we usually top it off with some great big eyelashes, which is one of our trademarks. And like you said, glitter, the more glitter, the better usually. Although now people are becoming aware that glitter might not be great for the environment. And I'm very nervous about that. But I'll make it it happen. For the the community. (laughs) (laughs) I'm willing to let glitter go. I never thought I'd say it out loud. You were the first to hear it. Oh, you heard it here first, folks. Okay, Roma, while we were emailing setting up this interview, I promised you a story and I want to tell it to you now because I understood it in a certain way at the time and I understand it even better now as like extremely representative of the sisters' values. So like you, I'm from the great Midwest. I'm from the suburbs of Minneapolis. And uh, I want to say it was like my first year living in San Francisco, which would have been 2009. I was living right on 18th Street, like almost right across the street from Midnight Sun. I used to walk by there every morning on my way to work and like people would be like raging at 8.15 in the morning and I would, you know, tip my hat and walk on. 
That was at the mix, girl. That's the mix across the street. Because they open at 6 a.m. They have the best Bloody Marys at 6 a.m. It's just like life-giving. Oh, my God. Do not <laughs> fuck with the sisters in the taxonomy of Castro bars. I stand corrected. <laughs> it's okay. So I think the year is 2009, and I know for a fact it was Easter weekend, which is a really big weekend in the sisters' calendar because of the sexy G- hunky Jesus. Excuse me. Again, got to get that taxonomy right. So my like very Catholic parents from Minneapolis, Minnesota are visiting me for Easter weekend and they're staying at the Parker guest house right in the Castro. And uh, I think we're sitting like at brunch at the Parker guest house that morning. And these two like beautiful drag queens in very mysterious costumes that like none of us know anything about the context or source for come and sit down. And my parents, bless their hearts, are, are, you know, like pretty underexposed to queer culture at this point. They're not coming to this with like hate in their hearts in any way, but they're definitely not super experienced. And I think as I remember it, what happened was the sisters kind of caught on that my parents were like not that subtly trying to sneak a glance at them. And in such a welcoming and open-hearted way, they approached us and were just like, how are you? Where are you from? What are you doing here? Did you hear about the Hunky Jesus contest? And like within 10 minutes, we were all talking like old friends and like taking photos. And it was just like a really generous interaction where two people who like could have chosen to respond, like could have made a very valid choice to respond in a different way to strangers' curiosity, just like made that a very teachable and caring moment. And it's just like always stuck with me about like the sisters roles as cultural ambassadors for San Francisco, you know, like San Francisco values get a very particular connotation in national news. And I've just always felt like the sisters represent some of the best of those values. Girl, you're gonna make me cry. Oh, no, it was a really it was a really touching moment. It made me cry. You know, it 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 really welcomed people. I love that story. And it, it touches my heart because you can imagine how different all the sisters are. We have every race, every gender. Of course. Every sexual inclination. We welcome everyone, every age. And as different as we all are with our, and we bring everything with us that we all were brought up, grown up with, we bring it together into this group. But there are some similarities that you will find in a sister, and it really is a calling. And one of the roots of that calling is a true empathy and compassion and love of people. Yeah. Yeah. Really it is. So when you when you the process to join a sister is quite complex and I always say that one of the most important lessons you learn in the early stages is you get your awareness of learning how people interact with you as when you present yourself that way and you have to have a very good sense. You try to read people and you know read the room they always say but you have to kind of figure out where people are coming from and give them their space if they want it. But I just love that that those sisters could see that your parents were looking a little curious and they just went up and and just said hello. And that's... That's so awesome. So what did your parents think? What did they say? They were totally tickled. They were so, I mean, I can't speak for them, but in my impression, I think they were relieved not to have offended anybody and left the interaction really having learned something and like gained a new kind of respect and perspective. And we've talked about that 
that meeting a lot in the years since. You know, I told them. I just had dinner with them a couple nights ago, and I was like, I'm interviewing a sister of perpetual indulgence. And they were like, the sisters! You know, like, it's, it's a thing now. You know, they know. And, like, I also told you over email, another way that I have experienced the sisters' public presence in the city is I've been on the board of directors of San Francisco Women Against Rape, which is also right on 18th Street in, um, in, in the Mission and in the Women's Building. And every year, SFR holds an annual walk against rape. Obviously, that got sidelined with the pandemic this year, which was like a huge bummer. And I highly suggest all of you just right now make some donations. But we do this this march around the mission and it's like very chill and like very inclusive. You know, nobody's sprinting at this march. And there's always a sisters delegation there in full costume and full drag. And, you know, as you were talking about the sort of ethos behind that presentation. I was thinking about what an impact that makes in a public forum like that to see people who are really visible, you know, like, and really calling a specific kind of attention to themselves, like when they use that power to call attention to say a whole bunch of sexual assault survivors who are marching to raise money, that makes a really big impact. So I'm, I'm so interested in it is a theatrical function of the costume, but there's also like a very real social progress function to it. And I'm really in admiration of how the sisters use all the different dimensions of that. Well, thank you. And I, I thank you for everything that you do with SF War. I, I absolutely would not miss it. I've been there every year. We've raised a cute amount of money for the for the march. I and know. It's so... It's so important to me. I know what women go through. I know the, uh, I mean, I don't know it firsthand, obviously, but I have friends and I have eyes and I read the news and I, I have right, conversations right. with people. And it's incredible what women have to go through. And it can be very terrifying. And it's so unfair to me that I'm happy to march with you and scream and draw attention to rape and, and get mad like mad. But at the same time, we're in this great group. And like you said, what an eclectic group marches. People come all ages, all over. Oh, there's the marching band. There's all ages, all races. We have the chants down. Then we do them in Spanish. You know, I mean, it's just like the most San Francisco thing. I I love it so much. So thank you for recognizing that we're there. And it's, you know, it is, um, we do draw attention to ourselves and we do draw attention to a cause. Over the years, I've had to kind of learn how to navigate that because it's not about me and it's not about the sisters. And sometimes it's definitely not about white people and it's not about drag. It's not about gay people. I, I've laid right. down and screamed, I can't breathe with the black community at a rally down in the waterfront and you know, it's like you have to like let the people who are being affected, who have organized the march, who really have the message to give, take the lead. And this, as sisters, we try to walk behind and support. So that's something that is, it's hard to do when you look the way we do, because we're always going to get the cameras and the people. And so it's sometimes we're like, should we go in drag? You know, we don't want to overstep. We don't want to detract. We don't want to pause more. It's not about us. And so we're always like right now we're doing a lot of outreach with people because of COVID. There's so many people on the streets who who need our help. So one of our new guards, Free Queen, has this project in Sister Anya Streets, who's also new. They're both very active in that community 
And they're going around and they're supplying people things and they have not gone out in drag yet. I, since I've been doing this for like 33 years, you know, I'm like, hell yes, bitch, I'm going as Roma. Like they're going to know that we're here because I want people to know the sisters serve so many different communities. We're not just here for the gays. You know, we, we did a campaign for breast cancer awareness this month and we do things for just about every community that you can imagine that, that needs us, that will have us. We're happy to be of service. Well, I think you I think you just eloquently gestured towards a core what I see at least as a core San Francisco value, which is that all struggles for liberation are intertwined and interreliant. And it doesn't matter if it's your fight or my fight. There is no us versus them, right? You know, like and, and I think that in serving that role of being cultural ambassadors, the sisters draw a lot of attention to how how to be a good ally too and and I think that was part of why we were interested in bringing you into this feminist conversation yeah well you know I was a little worried about that I when I think of feminists I'm like Gloria Stein you know I'm like no I'm not her but I definitely but then you did point out I absolutely am a feminist I 100 percent I yeah and I believe that if you are going to be a gay man you better also be a feminist Oh, yeah. I'm saying. Right? I mean, hello. Plus, not only that, but I was raised by my mother as a single mother from infancy. And she was absolutely just so inspiring and amazing to me. And I've had great female role models. I've always supported and respected women to the highest. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's just mm-hmm. ridiculous. I, I don't like to generalize. I, I'm not going to say it, but I think about men. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Because there are there are men who are feminists who get it. I mean, you know, I was born one, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Adrian we, we, sits awkwardly gonna... in the corner. <laughs> what? <laughs> were you going to quote uh, something like it hot? Men are such awful hairy beasts or something. Yeah, that too. Oh, well, don't go. Oh, please, Blanche. I don't want to talk yeah, about yeah. that. When you reach a certain age, hair starts sprouting out all over the place. It's a horrible <laughs> reminder of your age and your male genetics uh, mm. yeah i think testosterone and any increase in age is just kind of a bad combo yeah. whereas it's widely known that estrogen leads to beautiful and painless aging for 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 the modern cis woman <laughs> so one of the things that the sisters recently did is we sainted ruth bader ginsburg in the castro i, I mean speaking that. of feminist hello I was there. Yeah. Yes. Wasn't that, that was awesome, wasn't it? It was so perfect also for the sisters and that it was joyous and funny and deeply serious at the same time. Uh, the, the, I think that's, that's always the wonderful thing to be both a little tongue in cheek and yet to say, but we are, we want to be clear. We're absolutely serious about this. We care and you ought to care as well. I think that's, I don't know. That's often how I think of, of the sisters presence in so many in so many at so many marches and events and i thought the rvg event was maybe the most perfect version of this i've ever seen yes well we wanted to do it sooner but the smoke and the air quality made us postpone it till we were did it as soon as we were able and just so your listeners who probably who may not know sainthood is an honor bestowed on the sisters it's the highest honor that we have that we award to people who exemplify the way that the sisters hope to live, the kind of community service that we do. We recognize that award for people who are activists, who promote a healthy sexual attitude, safer sex, people who are out loud and proud, people who work in the community, tireless fundraisers, community 
activists, politicians, and even just our friends who like have supported the sisters all the time and lug shit around for us, you know, for like <laughs> uh, for years and years and years. And we're like, you're a saint, girl. You, Margaret Cho, you know, Stormy Daniels. <laughs> There's this, um... I wanted to talk about both of those people. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let's do it. Well, Margaret Cho is a famous San Francisco native and a tireless activist for all kinds of communities. But I mean, probably the more discussable one is Stormy Daniels. Can you talk a little bit about the honor that the sisters bestowed upon Stormy? Well, we were so impressed by her chutzpah when it came to taking on this entire nightmare that sort of, I mean, by no, is no fault of her own. People have so many misconceptions and ideas, first of all, about right. who she is. A lot of people have a yeah. problem with her just because she's an adult performer and that whole thing. Right. But then they also blame her for things that were that are not she did not do. Like she just very, very brazenly took it face on. And she had to put up with death threats and she was determined not to be a victim at all in this and to stand up and tell the truth because she knows how important it was. So the sisters were like, that deserves recognition. So we knew that she was performing at the, um, I believe it's the Hustler Club down in the, in Soma. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we contacted her manager and told them what we wanted to do. And they arranged for us to come to the show. So we went, got to go to the club, which who doesn't love a strip club? And I mean, really, I've been to the Hustler Club. Oh, so fun! And the <laughs> you know the girls are so they're just beautiful and sexy and flirty, and a lot of them are lesbian. They're they're all over the place. Those girls, but they just it's a it's a classy place. It's as beautiful I inside, and they love a drag queen. You know, those girls love a drag queen, and Stormy was no different. She was absolutely thrilled with the honor. She was just beaming. We gave her this the certificate. She was like, we're putting this up. And she just was really, really happy about it. And she's she's a hero in my eyes. I mean, she she knows the word. Her and Kathy Griffin absolutely took the brunt of the fear of actually. I mean, can you imagine being attacked by the Department of Justice <sighs> and the president of the United States? Like, this is crazy. Poor Kathy, who's another saint of ours. I mean, the things that she had to go through. Have you seen her documentary? A Hell of a Story? No. Oh, no. Oh, you, we we showed it at the Castro Theater, and she came, and we had a full question and answer, and that's where the sisters got to Saint Kathy. And I've been friends with Kathy for a long, long time, but I and I knew she was going through it with the whole Trump with the head thing, but I really had no idea the extent of it. It's just a horrifying story what she had to endure, and she is another person who just picked herself up and worked it out. She found places that she could perform and keep her show going and keep the income coming and tell her story. And she continues to just face it head on. You know, the fish rots from the head. And right now we got a rotten fish head. Man, do we. I think that might be giving him too much credit, honestly. <laughs> I know. What is your plan for taking care of yourself and your community? Well, I'm watching everything. I, I can't help it. I, I like to stay informed. I'm aghast at some of the things I see. I don't understand how people can politicize a mask. Like, it's... It, it just, it boggled. but again, it came from the top. It was the attitude, the cavalier, the carelessness, that, and the absolute cruelty, really, of the administration 
You would think that if you're going to have a rally with people who are going to vote for you, you'd want them to live long enough to do it. Right. <laughs> Again, <laughs> you know? giving him too much credit for strategy. I mean, please, you know, how about, I'm like, you know, it's, 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 it's no big deal, this COVID, but maybe you should wear a mask. You know, I mean, but no, none of that. And then, then I knew the minute that he got it, he was going to come out pounding his chest like King Kong. It's just the whole thing is so predictable and people are just falling for it. So anyway, the way I'm, I'm protecting myself is focusing on the good. I have faith in humanity. I know that there are more of us than there are of them. They're very loud and vocal and they're getting louder and it's insane to watch and they get a lot of attention because I think it's because it's like a train wreck. You just have to watch like these boat parades. Like what? Who does that? Like what you just, but you can't help but look. People are just, it's, they're so awful. What I'm actually doing is kind of just trying to brace myself for the aftermath of the election because I don't think that that's going to go smoothly either. No, no. And, you know, it's, and I'm sure that this uh, Amy Comey Barrett is just is a lovely woman. Well. But <laughs> she is terrifying. She is terrifying. She's been a judge for three years and now she's on the Supreme Court. She's to me. It feels like the whole thing was a setup and a plan from the beginning. That woman could use a little feminist injection. I'm saying, yeah, really. The whole COVID thing in, in my realm in my sphere has been surprisingly. I'm I'm okay. Like I have been very lucky to be able to work from home this whole time. They got us set up. We're like everybody's been working remotely since March 17th. And that's all great because I can't imagine being in the middle of all this and having to worry about how I'm going to make money or pay rent or feed myself or God forbid, feed a family. Like I just, I freak out thinking about things like that. So I've been doing as much as I can to help. I uh, partnered with San Francisco with the sisters to do a mask campaign. So we have our, our posters are all over the city of us in mask, encouraging mask wearing and been doing, we, the sisters started a, a thing called the squeaky clean gutter Queens where we get together and we go out in masks and socially distant and just walk up and down through neighborhoods and pick up trash in the street. We did the Mission, the Castro, the Transgender District, and the Hate so far. And that's been a great, yeah, it's been a great way for us to get outside, get some exercise, see the community, see each other, and do some good. You know, just it's just a, one of the little things that we do. To, it just makes you feel better. I've been hosting a ton of online fundraisers for different things, like the Grateful Garment, which is an organization that I that I met and fell in love with because I never knew that when you go, if, if you've been sexually assaulted and you go file a report, they take a rape kit and quite often they take your clothes as evidence. And people, women, children, men, anybody who's sexually assaulted don't have anything to wear. I mean, it's not funny. It's, to Ironic, me, it's just, it? it's just my guy kind of was like incredulous, like what? So they told me about it. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to give you money. And then they're like, no, we want you to host a fundraiser. So I gave him money and hosted a fundraiser. Um, you know, things like that. It's just whatever we can do to help out and, and be of service. Because I really feel very lucky, very fortunate at where I am in my life and the opportunities that being a sister has given me. But I think it's because when you're of service, you're happier. If you're contributing to making someone's life better or doing whatever you can. Like my friend, my best, one of my best friends of over 30 years opened a restaurant and he started to do it at the beginning of COVID. He had all the plans were like going, he had the place, he was sending me pictures, I'm painting the inside, we're so happy. And then he sent me a text and he's all like, I'm going to name it Roma's because it's an Italian restaurant. 
So Roma's Ristorante Italiano is now open, but as soon as it opened, COVID hit. Oh, no. So I know. So we were like, are you still going to do it? I mean, is, are you sure? So he pivoted and he opened a, a, delic, a Italian bodega with delicacies from imported from Italy. And they did to-go orders. And it's been open now for three months. And we're doing drag deliveries, which... I'm pe- Googling it right now. Yeah, it's, and the food is, is so, so good. And it's, I've never had a restaurant named after me before. No, that's amazing. That's a big deal. I mean, I think it's a, a little scandalous it took this long, but <laughs> let's just be happy that it happened at exactly, all. Exactly, right? I guess. Okay. So the drag deliveries are people can order for themselves and we'll t- bring your meal to you on every other Wednesday. We just did it yesterday. But what people started to do is make donations of dinners. And then we picked charities. So we went to My Tree, which is a hospice in the Castro, and we delivered dinner to 20 people last night. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And then we went to UCSF Children's Hospital and took dinner to the OBGYN group. And then some friends of mine ordered dinner, and then we sat down and had... It was, it's just been such a crazy experience. But again, it's like an opportunity to, to bring some joy into some people's lives. And I just... I always encourage people, like, take any opportunity you get to volunteer and be of service and get outside of yourself. Think outside of yourself, because it's so easy to, like, bump into the walls of your own insecurities and your own thinking and your fears, worrying about what you did or what you might do, what's going to happen. Like, just live in the now and look around and get involved. Like, show up. Be of service. It's so freeing. Ugh, I love it. And I mean, it's definitely something we will need in the next couple of weeks, probably, as well. Yeah. One of the things I've often thought about is, you know, the way you're describing, you know, the very kind of naturalness with which you started doing COVID work and helping out in the community. There is something about the relationship to HIV AIDS in the 80s, right, where where San Francisco, San Francisco just kind of knows how to how to just step up and do the right thing. And I am often struck seeing how other parts of the United States really struggle with the basics of taking care of each other where you think, well, gee, that's exactly where you were in the 80s when you could see nothing but, well, these people deserved it and whatever, right? Like there is something, um, it's weird that 40 years later, we're still, or 35 years later, we still kind of live in the shadow of the initial AIDS crisis uh, where some parts of the United States clearly have learned the lesson and know exactly what it is to, to help people out who are struck by a terrible disease. And other parts of the country seem constitutionally incapable of that almost huh yeah it's been impossible not to draw comparisons between what we went through in the early 80s with hiv and aids and where we find ourselves with the coronavirus because there was quarantine self-quarantine fear stigma how do you protect yourself? We were handing out condoms. That was the first thing we did was the condom ministry and the sisters were like trying to not tell people what to do because who responds to that, but to show them a fun way to use condoms, to be sexy about it. We did condom ministry. We did condom communions. Any way that we could to like get people to realize, hey, this can really save your life. So jumping on that mask campaign just felt very natural to many of us who were around then and to the sisters today. And I'm so proud of San Francisco because back then, our community rallied with our allies, of course, and showed the rest of the world how to deal with a pandemic. Really taught the world how to respond. And we survived. And so once again, here we are in San Francisco in our little yellow zone, surrounded by orange and purple and the rest of the country. And our numbers are looking good because like you said, San Francisco's been around this before. 
And we are so blessed to live here because we really do, there is a San Francisco core values that, and that's, it all goes along with that. And it is about being practical and listening to science and believing the media and the doctors and listening to science and respecting yourself and each other enough to protect yourself and to love each other enough to protect yourself, protect each other. I mean, that's just... That's who we are. That's what we do. And it reflects in our numbers. Like you can't argue with it. I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, I am both always down to praise San Francisco past the point of what's reasonable and wary of how the rest of the country perceives us. But the numbers just don't lie in this case, you know, like it's just been so consistent. I mean, it's not paradise. Yeah. I'm not a fool. I know we've got problems and, of I, course. and I'm out in it. Like I, you know, I live, do you know where I told you where I live? I live like a three blocks away from Union Square up here on uh, Sutter. So, I mean, I've, I'm in the thick of it. I can walk out my street and if it's after dark, it's like the walking dead sometimes. And there you see people who are really struggling and suffering and it can be scary. And, you know, we're not a perfect city, but we are definitely one of the best places in the world to live. Still, I fell in love with it 35 years ago and I still love it today. Well, every time I talk to you, I, I have to say, I, I fall in love with it a little bit more. Oh, it's so true. <laughs> Can I ask, if we're so lucky and, you know, things fully reopen and we all have our vaccine, what's the event you're most looking forward to? Well, I, I think I'm going to go back to the Hunky Jesus because that is, that is the sister's anniversary party and it's free. We throw the biggest party in the world free for our community to thank you for allowing us to be of service. This would have been our 41st anniversary And that party, traditionally in Dolores Park, attracts be between 10 and 20,000 people. It's the most San Francisco experience. You just, like, again, you'll see... Quintessentially, every, yes. Right? Everybody's there, and they have their blankets and their edibles and their camera phones. I mean, like, everybody is happy and so many costumes and Easter bonnets and families and children and dogs and it's joyous. And then the Hunky Jesus Contest, which I have personally emceed for the last, you know, 15 years or whatever, 20 years, is, this is so iconic because the contestants, first of all, are twisted and creative and the ideas that they come up with. We have added Foxy Mary to the mix, of course. The costumes are over the top. The concepts are hilarious. And our audience is very smart. San Francisco is not going to respond to your basic, anything too crass or too easy. If you have a clever concept, the audience will eat you alive. I mean, we do love a hunky, hunky Jesus. But you don't have to be ripped to win this contest. You have to be clever And it's just, it's such a beautiful event. I can't wait to get back to that. And then, of course, Pride. I have MC the main stage at San Francisco Pride with my dear, dear friend, Honey Mahogany. This year, we did it in a studio, and it was broadcast virtually. And that was a very different experience because when you're on that stage at Civic Center and there's like 100,000 people and the rainbow colors and the, the people of all ages and every, everybody you can think of out there just screaming and cheering And feeling the pride that I can't wait to get back to that too. But I think that almost any event that we do or anywhere we go is going to feel like a celebration when this is all over because we've had to be so cautious and so isolated and we miss our friends and we miss any sense of just relaxing in public and not worrying. I think everything that we do is going to feel like a celebration for a very long time. Mm. Sister, I was raised Catholic and trained with a lot of deference to nuns, so I have to end by saying peace be with you. Oh, and also with you. 
The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas and Isabella Tilly. All our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman that none of us have seen recently, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. And we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues there, Cynthia Newberry, Alison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, and Sarah Mersney. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes or another platform to help other folks join our discussion. Chuck, you know who you are.